A to Millennials, then Fall Society. On today's episode, we will be talking food, politics, and cultural differences. The conversation did meander around a bit, so there are a few musical interludes. There is also a sensitivity warning as the discussion of suicide does come up. Stay safe and enjoy. So here we are again today on another wonderful episode of A to Millennials. Uh, I am Louise Duncan, and today I am joined by... I'm Marty Zeller-Jakes. I am a lapsed academic, uh, I guess. Until recently, I was a senior lecturer in film and media studies at Queen Margaret University, uh, and Louise's course tutor back when she was doing her undergraduate degree. And I quit that for reasons which might come up in this podcast or might not. Um, But currently I'm retraining as a chef in my early 40s uh, during a time when the food industry is in tremendous flux because of a pandemic which has made it impossible for anyone to eat out. Uh, So that's good. So overall, very simple, very easy decision, you know, you've made there very clear. I mean, the the decision was easy. Um, It it was very clear that I wanted to be done with academia for, for no one big overwhelming reason, but for lots of little ones that in aggregate meant it was pretty hard for me to feel like I still belonged there. And the food thing is is kind of the culmination of everything else I've been doing and thinking about over the past 10-15 years. Yeah, and and I was sort of the the one of the first and kind of last of your classes to do your, your food and media module, which, you know, I find particularly interesting as I think cookery is just, I mean, food is great. If you don't mm. think food's great, I'm not sure what's right with you or what's wrong with you. It's um, just such a great thing to have as a hobby because you have to be involved with it. There's no getting around it. Absolutely. The, the more practice you put in, the better the food is, like infinitely. Mm. So yeah, I don't see any problems there. But yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit about some media stuff. We're going to be talking about some food stuff and just see where it goes. But yeah, I think the the thing that we were discussing earlier, um, that that notion that referring to straight people as the default, uh, as as a joke, has has it is both a meme, but it's also actually kind of a decent way to think about it, especially because a lot of academic terminology, which I think is super useful because it describes things in usually thoughtful and interesting ways, mm. um, a lot of it has become kind of toxified by the wider discourse because it gets imported into a wider discourse where it isn't fully explained and where a lot of people who don't like thinking about things for more than 10 seconds at a time get really offended by it and become kind of you know people who have principled exceptions to to terms like cisgender to terms like heteronormative like those just ring alarm bells for people who who are looking to be worried about these things um and and default is explicable and and it is it basically means the same thing as normative it's and and i think in that it is interesting because a lot of sort of queer culture is about appropriating terms that have been used as slurs or as offensive terms and um, even queer in mm-hmm. itself it was sort of just started as a word and then became a slur and then has been reclaimed and some people are still uncomfortable 
with using it but i find yeah, it absolutely. Just a great umbrella term yeah and and it it's somewhat generational like it's not surprising that people are still uncomfortable with using it because in some places it is still used as a slur it's not like queer is universally accepted by everybody as uh, a positive bit of self-definition um, and I've found it with both very young people who haven't encountered these ideas yet, but also with middle-aged people who grew up with queer being an insult, and they spent a lot of time learning that it was not okay to use that word, and then all of a sudden it gets reappropriated by the community, um, and, and they do get a bit of, of kind of conceptual whiplash, because, you know, they did put the effort in to think about these things, and now all that thinking has to go away. Damn yeah. it, sometimes you just want to think about things once. <laughs> Oh, I wish. But even in that, I think there are still words which, you know, can never be reclaimed. I don't want to be saying any of them, of course, but there are words that I think can't be reclaimed. Yeah, uh, unquestionably. And I, I think it's always interesting to see where language goes around with this. I mean, one one of the uh, the Dungeons & Dragons content creators, uh, who's a cosplayer who whom I follow, was recently kind of opining the mainstreaming of the term simp. Um, and, yeah. and saying like I am not comfortable with the term simp because of the acronym you know yeah. because yeah. it comes from a really ugly place and so even when it's being used parodically to, to kind of mock our own parasocial relationships with content creators eh, it's just it's not a nice set of associations to bring in I know we've had some discussion in this flat about the use of twitch emojis when saying how they're written out as a replacement for emotions or you know kind of as a part of language um, and then of course recently there's been mm. a little bit of a scandal with a couple of the different emojis that were used to explain excitement or you know happiness or whatever if something bad happens oh monka s or these kind of things it's sort of there's so many layers of you have to know either what those you know emotes are and then how they're used yeah. and then oh you can't use those ones anymore but you're still trying to get those feelings across and yeah i think that as language is evolving to sort of encompass not only the new terms not only reclaimed terms but also terms that just don't make any sense without the context um right. i think english mm -hmm. is going to get really weird <laughs> I think all, all forms of communication are kind of already pretty weird um uh, and and the internet and the various little tiny sub-communities that, that make up the, the kind of Brownian motion of the internet make it weirder. Um, I mean, one, one of the examples of this that I, I thought was particularly hilarious because it kind of aligns with my own political predilections, when the Tea Party movement in the U.S. came around, they started self-identifying as teabaggers. <laughs> um, and the liberal media kind of went, okay. If that's what you want to call yourself, mm. great. Thanks, right. thanks for doing our job for us, guys. And it took them a while to catch on to why that was hilarious to people who were aware of what teabagging was in another context. Mm. And, and then they changed the, the way they were referring to yep. themselves. But I think those sort of barriers of communication, uh, especially because they often act as a, a kind of subcultural capital a kind of way of saying oh i am in with this particular crowd i get yeah. this set of references um they they can create these really powerful affective barriers between people where it feels bad to not understand what someone else is talking about and to get laughed at because you don't understand what they're talking about and that's a pretty common experience um mm -hmm. 
even apart from people actively trying to hurt one another's feelings, like we're, we're often running into these weird communication barriers these days. And I, and I think even just looking at sort of that intergenerational aspect to it, that I know that it's something that like my dad watches Twitch um, and, you know, he is now 50 plus. And that's very much something that none of his friends use Twitch yeah. or even really know about it. And so even in that, mm-hmm. you know, there are language communications that me and him can understand. But then like my sister, who is much closer to my age, will will not get because she's also not involved, even though she's yeah. arguably should be um, a lot more aware. Your classmates, they can be studying the same subject and still not have all of those sort of cultural keys to understand the language even of just dissecting media itself. Yeah, I think that also plays into why we're seeing a lot of cultural divides around the conversations people are having. Because for some people, we are normalizing conversations about identity and about sexuality, about race, about politics, and and building those into the ways we interact with one another in our everyday lives. And a lot of other people are not doing that. And and they're not necessarily not doing that from a place of, of malice. It just feels like extra. Like it, it's mostly not directly relevant to how they interact with the world. Now we can argue about whether or not it should be, but they can go through their lives quite happily without thinking about that stuff. And so when they accidentally wander into an area where everyone is really down on them for not having already done all this work... Yeah. I think that does create real divisions. Yeah, and I think even just those those barriers themselves. I know I've spoken a little bit about barriers with Ricardo already this season, and I think that will naturally come with a topic like limitations, that you can sort of put up your own barriers of I will not engage with that or I do mm-hmm. not want to know about this, uh, and sort of in that you have isolated mm-hmm. yourself from certain areas of content. Um and I think that ties in with ideas of cringe. You know, you, there's a lack of wanting to understand because there's sort of awkward feelings or it also just ties in, you know, with religious beliefs and, and your own personal beliefs. What you think is valid to take the time to understand might be really yeah. acceptable for you, but not for others. I think one of the other things you can see is that a lot of savvy content creators are kind of heading this off at the pass. They are trying to retake control of earlier versions of themselves. And you can see that going on at different levels of the media sphere. So, you know, I'm conscious Taylor Swift is re-releasing her, her albums from when she was young. Now, some of that is about her retaking control literally of the music rights because the, there were sort of ownership issues with who had access to, to that material. Um, but I think you can also see it with certain YouTube content creators where there's this, this kind of subgenre of YouTube videos where you look back at your old videos and you maybe react to them or you reassess them. Uh, most of the YouTube content I consume these days is food related and a lot of the time that's people revisiting recipes, sometimes explicitly because what they had done before was something they got backlash for about being culturally insensitive. Something you hear of the sordid YouTube channel where... Uh, There was a a fairly big viral news story after they did a a paella challenge video and one of the guys did a a kind of bastardized paella burrito and, and, you know, got jumped upon by lots and lots of people. Um, And and it's since become, you know, paella specifically, but more and more dishes of lots of different types have become spaces where 
they take the opportunity to do that little bit of extra research and try to be more culturally informed when they're cooking something and not just kind of slap together a bunch of stuff that says probably a bit Spanish uh, when they're when they're cooking in that way. And I and I think then even in that that the the cooking sphere and the online sort of recipe place, I do a lot of food on TikTok, um, and there are genuine people mm-hmm. making sort of this is my mum's recipe, you know, of my culture that I understand. And then there's other people who are like quick veganuary meals, you know, and they're they are bastardized yeah. and the wrong ingredients or mislabeling ingredients and not understanding the importance of certain spices or herbs. Um, and yeah, I think in that mm-hmm. there can also be a cringe level to not fully understanding what it is you're doing at the time, whether that's looking back at it and being, sure. oh gosh, that was cringe or just doing it now and being like, oh, it's maybe maybe not the thing I should be doing. Yeah, and the, the TikTok thing I think is, is interesting because that's a platform that is designed for viral sharing. It's designed to say, I saw this cool thing, I'm going to either repeat it exactly, put my own twist on it, or you know, in some way remix or reimagine it. Um, and I suspect there is a lot of kind of rote repetition that comes through TikTok. There, there do seem to be new genres coming up. I only ever see it secondhand coming through other platforms. I have not. Yeah. It's it's too too much. I'm going to wait for TikTok to die, and okay. I'll, and I'll surf the it. next wave. Yeah, or or you know I'll wait for whatever the next one is. Okay. TikTok has never felt like my place. <laughs> That's fair. But yeah, uh, Instagram, Instagram, I like. It's it's all positive and sunshiny and nice. It, Seems but to be then a I think toxic social media community. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one just with toxic social media communities because I think we keep we keep talking about elements that oh yeah, and if you go to this part it's horribly toxic. Um yeah. and I think that's maybe something that comes with the limitations of media on the internet possibly and being mm-hmm. a bit vague, but I think with social media platforms because there can be some kind of monetary gain you know, whether that's through advertising or the mm-hmm. platform itself paying you as a creator, there is definitely incentive Sorry, to um, go viral or to share something which is clickbaity or something which is actively um, antagonistic so that you get that lashback. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, again, if you're if you have an understanding of social media platforms and of media of itself of, OK, this is just trying to antagonize me, I won't engage with it. Or this is something which is maybe a bit dangerous to be involved with. I'm just not going to engage with it. Mm-hmm. Then you can sort of actively manage yourself in those spaces. But I think if you're a much younger audience or you don't have the same education, mm-hmm. you can very easily fall into these traps. Um, Absolutely. I know. I, I think it's also, you know, the, the negative interconnections that you make on these platforms are much easier to make because you don't have to ask someone's permission to do a response video or to, to do a reaction video to whatever they did. It, it is kind of a legitimate fair use of their content as the kernel of your own content. And then, you know, you've created this, this kind of recursive cycle of, of basically people abusing one another online. I think it's much harder to do something like, say, the Green Brothers have done, where you know they are at at their core collaborators, and they're always mm-hmm. bringing other people up and and trying to share content and share resources and create and foster positive uh, intercommunication. Ultimately, it still works on the same principle that drawing a line between yourself and other and another content creator helps to shape your brand, helps to expand your brand but it's much harder work to do it that way. 
and and also the the pair of them have evolved with you know multiple different platforms over the last yeah. 10 years um arguably the way that they started was kind of cringy in oh we'll mm -hmm. send ourselves blogs you know which is sort of wholesome in some ways but i also think could be seen as embarrassing as it is partly a misuse sure. of the original platform but there wasn't really any main plans for how to use youtube back then so mm -hmm. it's sort of a bit of a mix um but yeah i mean they have been able to stay on their platforms and do increasingly more elsewhere um Poor Hank Green is on TikTok currently trying to just answer bizarre questions. And there's definitely a more or or a slightly more frantic element which is added into each video as these questions are getting more and more complex um, and less mm. answerable in sort of 15 second snippets. Um, and, and I do think it is interesting how his content currently is having to shift to fit you know to fit with the sort of pandemic fever that we're all kind of getting and also mm -hmm. just the social cultural everyone's wanting something snappier something more engaging something more sort of angry or funny the ways in which the circumstances of the pandemic have encouraged us to be aware of limitations which you know, either we didn't feel before, which maybe genuinely weren't there before, at least for us, can be a really valuable thing. Whether it will be, I think, is a, an open question. If we take away from this that, you know, we want to, to go out and break the chains of all the people whose lives are unjustly limited all the time, mm. uh, then great. I think this could be a wonderful transformative moment for world culture. Um, if we just think, oh shit, thank God I can go to the pub again, yeah. then, then it's probably less transformative. Um, and we probably get to do this again in another five years. Yeah, I think there will definitely be uh, an easing of restrictions to a point, you know, where you don't realize that it's stricter than it ever was before. Um, yeah. To try not get too Orwell um, and paranoid on here, I definitely think with perhaps the older generation, there will be, a, oh, thank God, I just want it to be how it was. But I know definitely amongst those of my generations or activists of my age, there is a, we don't want it to go back to how it was because how it was was bad. And though this in some ways is worse, there is also some great advancements how everyone can now work from home really easily. And oh yeah, that was something we could have done all this time. And it's an incredibly sort of factor which, which allows so many more to be able to work whether they couldn't get into the office or couldn't do that. People are able to kind of work from home, but then that's a double-edged sword because it's now, well, if everyone can work, then why aren't you working all the time? Sure. I mean, I, I think there are a bunch of different questions that arise from that. And we're, we're at a juncture with society where I think this comes up al almost any time you pull at a thread, you, you end up with the question, but if we do that, then this will collapse. And, you know, the revolutionary answer is, well, it should, you know, <laughs> yeah. burn it all down. Um, and I have some sympathy with burn it all down. I always do. You know, it's, it's decisive. It's clear. Mm. Um, I, I would definitely be one of the people up against the wall, but whatever. It's also almost certainly going to cause a lot of pain, and it's going to cause a lot of pain for people who are already in pain. Like, that's, that's what revolutions do. Nobody gets out clean. I, I think more we need to be comfortable with the places where if we pull on this string, that other thing's going to break, where, where we just go, well... Okay, 
cool. So, you know, if everybody works from home, then all of a sudden there's a bunch of vacant real estate in major cities, which used to have offices in them. There's also a real housing shortage in major cities. We could have a government-sponsored program that allowed us to reclaim these office buildings as newly renovated cheap apartments and kill two birds with one stone. Like, that's... That's a thing we could do if the will and the, the kind of problem-solving intent is there. And that doesn't require a revolution. That just requires people not wanting to only go back to exactly how it was. Yeah, I think there are definitely also other elements to the pandemic which have sort of highlighted things that, as you say, not everyone sort of knew about. Um, I think it's really interesting, the sort of panic-buying waves, which, mm-hmm. you know, originally started as rumours in Australia that then Mm -hmm. flooded the whole world, even though the supply and demand for all the different types of food and and sort of supplies are entirely different everywhere. Mm -hmm. And and that sort of, again, kind of shows you the power of social media and paranoia and, you know, which channels chose to show the images of the empty shelves and and sort of Mm -hmm. that trickle-down effect. Um, Yeah, and it also, like, the the other part of the panic-buying story, though, was about our fragile supply chains. So if you take something like toilet paper, the issue with toilet paper was that domestic toilet paper is produced sort of as it's needed. Nobody wants to have a huge warehouse full of toilet paper because it takes up a lot of space. Mm -hmm. There was a ton of like office toilet paper. It still existed. It was there, but the supply chain wasn't there to get it repackaged to get it put into supermarkets where people could buy it um and and that's i think really interesting you saw some adaptations like tesco started carrying huge sacks of flour that were normally only sold to caterers but caterers didn't need them now i love that i've still got a five kilo sack of flour in my kitchen and i i bought as many of those as i could because like everybody i was cooking even more than usual uh, throughout the pandemic but i think you know, seeing some of the ways in which our supply chains were disrupted shows you some of the costs of the ways that, that we live with everything available on the moment, in the moment. And I, I think that's also partially encouraged people to try to think about how they manage their existence, how they keep things in stock, how they take responsibility for, for kind of stocking their own larders. Now, that's probably a very middle-class response. You know, you can do that if you've got the extra income and the extra space in your house. And, and I suppose this is where all of these things become problematic because my insight here of I can run my household a different way and it'll actually be better post-pandemic because of what I've learned from this, eh, that's, that's my insight that comes from my place of privilege. A lot of other people just couldn't get toilet paper. Uh, and, you know, th- those are the different experiences that ended up coming out of this and they're built on... The structures of injustice that were there beforehand and that if we're not careful are still definitely going to be there afterwards the idea of filling up your cupboards with food uh you know is a great in concept because then you know you won't run out or you've got some safe i think something that we did up in the highlands because you have to because of those power cuts there's no getting food but that also yes implies that you've got enough money to buy the extra and i think especially with that living from paycheck to paycheck mentality or or you know forced Mm -hmm. forced living um, it, it, for a lot of people, they have lost a lot. But it's sort of shocking to see how it's not that it's lost and it's gone, but it's that that wealth has merely moved. Mm-hmm. And there seemingly is no catching up to that 
redistribution of wealth or i don't want to sound too communist here that's the worry um but <laughs> no I, I think i think redistribution of wealth should absolutely be a cross-party idea in this current moment mm. like the the communist version of it is we redistribute all the wealth and we ensure that everyone is provided for across the whole mm. of society which doesn't sound that terrible to me um but I think the the idea that in the current moment we have to there there is an absolute moral imperative for even conservatives within America and within the UK to look at the way our society is structured look at whose profits who who has profited and look at who has lost here and to say you know what at least on a one time basis let's redress this imbalance and absolutely left wing political parties should be slavering to do this they should be looking at this moment and saying what if we campaigned on a 5% wealth tax for everybody who's worth over 500,000? Okay. And we say, look, we're going to do this once. We're going to use it to fund social programs, build infrastructure, and to channel money into the pockets of people who were hit hardest by the pandemic. And we think this is absolutely necessary as a one-time measure. And hey, if we've proven that it can work once, then yeah, maybe we do it again. And if you think we wasted it and we didn't do it right, well, don't vote for us again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as, as a, at least as a one-time thing, it seems pretty obvious that we need to have some sort of massive redistribution of wealth. I mean, I'd, in, in the recent American election, I was a big Elizabeth Warren backer. Um, you know, I, I like some of Bernie's ideas. I struggle with a lot of Bernie's supporters. Um, and, and I think Warren actually just has better worked through versions of Bernie's ideas. And one of her big central policies was a wealth tax. And and she wanted that to be a consistent ongoing thing. And to be honest, even just from having some money in a a kind of stocks and bonds accounts and leaving it there, if you hit me with a 2% wealth tax every year, I would still make money on my stocks and bonds account. And it's not a special one. It's not a fancy one. (laughs) I just leave it there. And it increases by a lot more than 2% every year. And that money could go to a bunch of different things within the culture that are sorely needed and and that are sorely needed just to ensure that we keep functioning at the level we are now, not even necessarily to be transformative. Uh, But if we don't continue investing in in infrastructure, and that's both IT and physical infrastructure, we don't stay a developed country. You know, we, we cede more and more of what governments should do to corporations, which you know, maybe that's inevitable. Maybe we're already too far down that road to stop getting there. Uh, but I think it's worth fighting against. Yeah. And I mean, I think also within that, there's at least a bit more sort of British centered is, you know, we've had the not defunding, but the sort of increasing cuts for the NHS and the welfare state and other sort of of those structures. Um, oh, what was it more recently? Universal credit to 60 quid taken off it, something like that. All of these little bits of money, which are supposedly sort of going to help everyone in the end. But actually, you know, this is money that is going for the people who, you know, cannot get this help anywhere else and who absolutely mm. are in need of it, um, you know, during a global pandemic. Uh, and yeah. and sort of nobody, or well, there was backlash, but sort of nobody batted an eye or, you know, I have yet to see the direct change after that. You know, you hear about the headlines of the cutting, cutting free school lunches for kids, you know, so during a pandemic, kids mm-hmm. don't get to eat. It's, it's that 
I cannot kind of fathom what is going on there, yet yeah. there will still not be that change at the end of the day because we are sort of slowly falling into yieldy mm. Britain. <laughs> um, yeah, and and I think that there... It feels to me like Britain is in a very serious political crisis, which has mostly gone, not unnoticed, but it's gone under-noticed because we've had a, an enormous, like, five-alarm tire fire in America for the last four years. And so within the English-speaking world, there's only a certain amount of bandwidth for, oh my god, what is going on? Yeah. And it's all been going to America. Um, oh, the cringe has shifted. <laughs> <laughs> and and it should. You know, the, the current government in the UK has, as far as I can tell, handled the pandemic as badly as they could have. They, they have done everything either too late or not at all. When you do it too late, you get the worst of both worlds. You get the draconian mm. restrictions and you also don't get the good effects that the draconian restrictions were supposed to create. Yeah. Um, and, and it's stunning to me the extent to which people give them a pass for the rampant incompetence at every level of the response and the extent to which they stick to their ideological guns. So, you know, you mentioned the, okay, we're, we're not going to give free school meals to kids because they're not in school. Now, actually, I can understand how that happens to a civil servant, how you think, well, here's a bright silver lining. We can yeah. cut this line item out of our budget. And then people point out, um, how am I feeding my kids? Fine. And then, and then you fix it. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, I can understand how that happens politically. What I don't understand is how you subcontract to this private agency who then puts together these ridiculously pathetic meal packs for kids that were getting yeah. shared around by Jack Monroe and a number of other food celebrities and by lots of the parents who were involved in these things. And, and then act like, oh, it's just the private company's fault. It's, it's just, you know, that they, they were abusing our good faith with this. That's what private companies do when you subcontract to them to provide something. Okay? If, if the government does something, there are inefficiencies and there are wastes, but the government is doing a thing because it thinks it's supposed to do that thing. If you have a private company do something, they are doing that thing to make a profit, and that's it. Like they, they, so, you know, your, your school lunch provision company, they're just a logistics company. They've, they've done some math on how many calories are supposed to be in this thing, and they've, you know, hit whatever minimum guidelines are in place, and they call it a day. They're done. Mm. That's what a private company is always going to do. And if they do any more than that, we're supposed to, I don't know, be thankful to them or, or increasingly, the longer I live in the UK, where I can see a little bit of what a welfare state should look like, the more I don't understand why anyone subcontracts to, to do things. You know, I, no, I, that's a lie. I understand why you would subcontract to companies who can construct things for you. Yeah, yeah. I understand why we don't keep people on to build the power plants, but I don't understand why we then give the power plant back to the power company. Mm -hmm. Why do we have five electricity mm -hmm. companies? Why do we not just generate electricity and, and then pay a stipend to have that electricity? 
I don't see where the benefit for anyone is in that system. And I, I think maybe that's where sort of personal goals do not necessarily line up with what is best for the people. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw some really great stats that were about how only 7% of the population actually goes to private schooling, yet 57% of people in government are from private schools. And it's sure. that kind of, there is a disproportional representation of a oh, certain yeah. class of person. And I think that then also encompasses with the Britishness. And I heard it on an interview, and I don't think I've ever heard anything so British, which is, you know, well, we've made our bed, so we've got to lie in it. Of, okay, well, we voted for Brexit, and now we're here, so we've just got to do it, even though it's starting to get increasingly yeah. more awful, especially for Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. You know, it comes back again, like with the independence referendum for Scotland. There's the, oh, well, we voted, so that's it. Nope. No yeah. change of circumstance can change my mind. You know, it's uh, like, well, actually, you, it's a whole different situation now. A lot of the things which we thought were true turned out to either be not real misinformation or don't apply anymore. I mean, at, at a basic level, I don't know about you, but a lot of the people I know who voted no on the Indy Ref were voting no because they wanted to stay in Europe. Yeah. Like that that was the the thing. It was not I want to stay with England because uh, <laughs> yeah. it was I want to be part of Europe and it's not clear that that will be possible if we separate from England. And now we're dragged out without our consent, in fact against the overwhelming preference of yep. people in Scotland. And that's pretty brutal. I don't know any other way to to square that, especially because you had Tory ministers at the time coming up and down the country, reminding us that, hey, if you leave the UK, you're no longer going to be in Europe. And then they're the ones who dump us out of it. At the time that the referendum was first going on, um, you know, a big thing up in the Highlands was, of course, the fishing industries, which have recently started crumbling in Scotland because mm -hmm. they're not getting the same subsidies or support or trade deals. Yep. And there has been, again, barely, barely batted an eye down in Westminster. Um, yeah. because it's not their priority because of course why would it be even though this represents not only a huge part of a culture but also an industry of a people's lives no i mean the the brinkmanship and the laziness and the venality of of the current government in terms of how they approached the whole process of exiting the eu is just another level of this it was you know their their message was essentially the same message that I used to get from my teenage son, which was like, yeah, I know. I'm going to deal with it. It's fine. Leave <laughs> yeah. me alone. It's, it's going to be okay. Fine. And then they're doing nothing the whole time. And then it's not fine. You know. Um, yeah, it does. The, the government does kind of feel like a bit of a teenage boy right now. I mean, that seems appropriate given who they've placed in power. I, I think it's illustrative of a problem about being a human, which is that <laughs> yeah. we're very good at getting used to things. And... Mm. It feels like Britain is trapped in this weird abusive relationship with its own government, and we're just used to it. We're like, yeah, I guess this is the way it is. I guess we can't have nice things, and the country's just going to slowly crumble around us. Nobody can do anything about it. What would yeah. we even do? And, you know, I think that's, that's not a real limitation. It's a limitation we, we kind of impose upon ourselves because it is hard to do big things. It's hard to reconceptualize the way the world could be mm. and when you fail to reconceptualize the way the world could be you end up in a place which is small c conservative you end up in a place where you're just trying to hold on to things yeah. you're saying you know we used to have this thing we're gonna fight like hell to keep it from completely disappearing and all the while it's getting kind of salami sliced away and it's worse and worse and worse and we do need to get to a place where we think you know what 
actually, we've had this opportunity to reconceptualize what our limitations are. Let's think about how we could conceptualize the world differently, how we could live differently, how we could treat each other differently, how we could structure power and property and ownership differently in order to help everybody. And I think you can see that happening in a bunch of different places, and often it's happening out of a kind of wider macro structure. So, you know, one of the topics you wanted us to, to kind of cover was the way that media has changed over time. And we've already talked a little bit about the, the kind of fragmentation of media audiences and the way different conversations are pushed into different spaces and spheres. And I'm, I'm always a little bit torn about how kind of hopeful or not to be about media, in part because all of the gains that have been made within the media space have been made on the back of basically the same fundamental underlying system, mm -hmm. which is that making media pay is about getting a valuable audience. It's about finding a lucrative audience. Now, what a lucrative audience is has changed. So that it used to be, if you were in America, your lucrative audience was you know 30 to 35 million people tuning into network TV. And now your lucrative audience might be half a million subscribers who watch at least three episodes of your bingeable Netflix mm. show. That means you can target half a million people. You can create uh, a TV show like, say, The Dragon Prince, which aims to be this kind of fairly woke version of high fantasy, uh, which explicitly talks about creating a better world and addresses some of the difficulties with creating that better world. And that can be successful because you only need that half million people. And if you're Netflix, you don't tell us how many people you're getting anyway. Yeah. Um, but you know, you can, you can create brand leaders that way. So I'm, I'm always a little bit torn. We're getting incredibly thoughtful, interesting, intelligent media content, both produced by big companies and being produced by individuals and shared around among them. We're creating vibrant and often quite powerful niche communities, both for good and for ill. Uh, there's a lot of power being redistributed. That said, it's all being redistributed within the framework that it is exploitable for profit by a, a kind of superstructure, which doesn't really care what we do with this stuff because we're doing it on their turf. Um, and that's all that really matters. Yeah, uh, and I think even just the the diversifying of shows uh, and who they're for, quality of writing, um, allowing minorities sort of, okay, now here's your five minutes to pitch me a story or whatever, that kind of increase in representation, but then we're also seeing an increase in sort of inspiration porn or, or you know, misrepresentation. Um, mm -hmm. You get that kind of weird melange where, okay, it's a little bit racist, but also, yes, we do get represented, and also it's ableist, but also, you know, and you kind of end up with these shows that are so created to be woke, I guess, try to achieve a new, you know, the new next big thing, but they are so kind of appeasable and bland <laughs> because they're trying to kind of appeal to all these people that it sort of undoes the work of hearing new voices and new filming techniques and brilliant costumes and there's sort of elements in there that we can be more accurate and we can be better and arguably yes this should be the best tv and streaming that we've ever had yet there are still i think failures in some areas oh there, there are definitely failures in lots of areas and I think that's okay. Uh, the, the thing that worries me more is that we are sliding towards a stage where we, we just kind of 
surrender to the the hyper fragmented media sphere that can only really be managed algorithmically mm-hmm. that has been created by the Googles and the Facebooks and which can only really be handled by them or companies like them because you know they're not necessarily permanent although it sort of feels like they are but I, I think as we move towards that more hyper fragmented way of being everything has to be engaged with socially like the only way you make a tiny television show work is people have to connect with one another about it it has to become cultural touchstone within a subculture in order to be viable and valuable to the people who are making it and there's no guarantee that this this sort of drive towards new content is going to continue you know we're, we're in a new phase of the streaming wars at the moment uh with with disney going all out and yeah taking advantage of the pandemic to to essentially do what they were doing anyway, which is become the world's biggest TV platform. Yeah. <laughs> By moving all the world's biggest movies onto that TV platform. Well, I, I do think that BritBox is a really interesting sort of case study in that, that it really mm. represents the UK, that it's a little bit too far behind. It's only got the old things that you're nostalgic for, and the app itself is really broken and doesn't work all the time. You know, and you get the bare minimum of functionality. Sure. Um, and, and it's really interesting that we've got it in our flat. And I was talking with my flatmate and they were an element of if it didn't have this content, I would have not paid for it a long time ago because sure. it is so sort of unusable and unuser friendly and they don't seem to want to change it or update it. Mm-hmm. And so it is interesting how that content itself can drive the usability of the platform in the same way that Disney knows exactly what it's doing and how to keep doing it um because as well we're all stuck inside yeah absolutely and and i mean the britbox thing is interesting as well in that the bbc was way ahead of everybody with streaming you know old content on iplayer and iplayer has always worked and still works well but it's not monetizable because they're the bbc yeah. And so instead of that becoming industry standard, they try to create the new thing that is monetizable. And it's a great sadness to me to see what has happened at the BBC over the time I've lived in the UK. And I think one of the tensions between the older generations who are still active now, many of whom would still identify with the, the political left and with that liberation that that sort of liberatory moment. I think one of the great tensions between them and the younger generation is the younger generation is saying, guys, some boundaries would be nice. Like, there's a lot of aspects of freedom, especially personal freedom, which we're totally on board with, but societies need rules. We need structures, we need support, uh, we need something to stop, you know, older people who already have all the power and all the resources from piratically running our yeah. lives forever uh, you know all, all of those things i i feel like there is a big generational divide and over a certain age group a lot of people are just ideologically opposed to boundaries because their whole life as younger activists was about destroying them mm-hmm. um, and they don't understand why young people might want something like safe spaces why young people might not yeah. want to engage with a, a group of anti-trans activists in a debate about trans people i understand where they're coming from because i was raised Mm -hmm. with basically that set of values but i've also the longer i've spent with young people and teaching young people and and talking to young people 
more I basically think we just need to shut up and get out of their way and let them build the thing they're going to build and let's see where the boundaries are in that. I think mostly they have pretty good instincts about where to put them. And, and I do think it's interesting because as well, the I think the idea of the term young people as well sort of discredits a little bit because I think we're at the point now where a lot of millennials aren't young anymore. Oh, um, I know. <laughs> and, you know, and are really sort of getting into what should be you know the main parts of their careers or they're sort of achieving parts of their lives and there is still this pushback because there are sort of i don't want to get too like uh, old people but i think there are elements of you know maintaining structures of powers that 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 have got them there because it got them there so why would it why could it be bad or, or how could it not work um you know, I think the American dream just is the best example of that, that it never really did exist, you know, and and sure, some people have somehow managed to get a dream, but whether that is the American dream, you know, get rid of all the branches, you can make it yourself. If you just work yeah. hard enough, you'll get there. But I think there has been over the last 20 years anywhere a realization that no matter how much hard work you do, just mm-hmm. a quick loan of a million, you know, <laughs> isn't even going to give you a business at that point yeah. because... You know, if you're not in the right spheres, if you're not doing the right people, if you don't know the right people, and there's so many people in the world, you can just mm-hmm. get stuck. Yeah, I mean, my my sort of shitty metaphor for understanding oh, this. I'm ready. Uh, <laughs> I, I, as as is often the case, I understand these things through my own relationship to games and sports. Okay, so I I spent a long time in my life being a very mediocre fencer. Um, you know, I was never really fit enough to be truly good at it. But I did it a lot and I was passionate about it. And I've also been a very mediocre Magic the Gathering player for quite a long time. Yeah. And I think there's something about the psychology of both of those things. of Just just being mediocre but competitive at a thing that a lot of other people are doing. Which feels really good. Okay? You, you do that thing and you feel like, I have a good grasp on how to do this thing. And you get to the end of the day and you place, I don't know, sixth out of 50 people and you think... I did well. I am yeah. proud of the way that I did this. And, you know, you were never going to win. You were never going to walk away with the top prize. That was just not on the cards for you. But it doesn't matter because you walked away with something and you hold your head up high at the end of the day. And over the course of a lifetime, you know, you get enough of those moments that you kind of dine out on them and you feel like, yep, I did things. Yeah. I feel like there was a point where capitalism let a lot of people do that. I think in the post-war moment, especially in America it was very possible to feel like you played the game and, you know, yeah, there were people who were better at the game than you, but hey, that's no big deal. Like, of course there are people who are better at the game than me. I got my piece, I did my fair share, and I was compensated for it. Now, the major caveat about that is that not everybody got that experience, even at the time when that experience was available. That experience was available to some people, certainly mm. not to everyone. Women had to work a lot harder. People of color had to work a lot harder if they got there at all. But there was a sense within the society at large, or at least the parts of the society who were allowed to speak, that it was possible to make that trip, to, to feel like, yep, I was in the game, I was competitive, wasn't a champion, they're not going to put me in the Hall of Fame, but whatever, I, I mm. played my part. I don't think that's true anymore. I I think basically for a young person starting out now, unless your parents are there to hand you a big chunk of money, it's mind-bogglingly hard to to get off the ground. 
Um, you might, if you do everything right all the way through school and really focus on getting an education that leads directly into a graduate job in a lucrative field, that's probably still a pathway that's open. But it's not open to everybody. I mean, just as a numbers game, it's not even open to everybody who thinks it should be open to them. I guess, no, I, I would sort of agree and, and add to that, that I think it's something that, you know, I'm coming across a lot of, and, you know, a lot of my friends have had to find jobs recently. Well, you know, we're all recent graduates. Some people already had jobs. Some people are wanting jobs related to their degree. Even if you have a first, even if you did spend all your extra time, you know, volunteering, mm -hmm. that can still not be enough for many people and I think the pandemic has also seen a large loss in jobs and certain fields have sort of shrunk in some ways mm -hmm. yet you know the people haven't we're all still here and that has been eye-opening I think for me as someone who's always been very supported um from sort of my family and, and education and other ways there are still elements where I do not meet all those requirements or I am not enough or I haven't, you know, I already haven't had enough experience to get those internships, which mm -hmm. sort of seems maddening. And so I, I'm in a position where I can shrug it off and it doesn't matter. But I think for a lot of my friends currently, everyone has managed to now get jobs. We're, what, nearly a year out of graduating. There's sort of something, I think, a bit scary about that because not everyone is doing what they, A, are best at, B, can do really well, uh, or, or, you know, have been have been trained to do. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think you can say that's life if you can figure out how it's going to change. Mm. You know, it. I'm much more comfortable with the world in which a university graduate with a first class degree spends six months working at McDonald's if I know that at some point yeah. they're going to get a, a job that they want. I don't know that. You know, I, I really don't know that. I feel like one of the things we haven't reckoned with as a culture is there, there genuinely isn't enough work to go around. We have a lot of made up jobs, a lot of jobs that are mm -hmm. basically low, low level service industry jobs that if we got rid of half of them, daily quality of life for everybody who depends on those services would be about the same because they would just go to the other places that provide the same services. So we have jobs that are there to provide people with economic activity because we've decided that people undertaking economic economic activity is somehow an intrinsic good, which I'm not at all convinced by. I think fundamentally, as, as a society, if we can get people out of work, we should celebrate that fact. Um, and, and we only celebrate it for certain people. Like, we've created this massive category of childhood, which didn't used to exist, really. Um, yeah, yeah. Certainly didn't exist in the same size and breadth that it does. And we have exempted those people from work. And at the other end of life, although we keep chipping away at it, we've created another category for people who are exempted from work. That's yeah. great. We should celebrate that. And we should also think about who else doesn't need to do economically remunerative work. Because actually your economic contribution does not have to do with whether you're getting paid minimum wage to serve people coffee when they could get it at 12 other places. If you are a parent who is staying home and raising kids, you're contributing to the economy quite significantly. Mm -hmm. You know, um, even if you just put a dollar value on what childcare would cost to take your time out of that, uh, you, you can get a sense of, of what you're contributing to the economy. But above and beyond that, you're hopefully creating happy, well-adjusted uh, capable young people who will go out and continue contributing to the economy. We, we do need a better sense of what work is valuable. And with, within that space, I think we need to think about 
how people might make themselves valuable. Um, and I think it's very hard to it's very hard to square all the different circles within this. You and all your friends want jobs. You want to go out and use the skills you spent four years developing. Yeah. And that's good. You should. And I'm sure all of you are capable of making great things. And some of you are already making great things. At the same time, you should also be people who can think, I have value whether or not I am doing this work, or I can just do this work because this work gives me pleasure, or because I'm contributing something to culture at large. We have the platforms that make that possible now. And that shouldn't be tied to my economic well-being as, as a human being. I think we do need to get to a space where we understand that work is not only not the be-all and end-all, it's not part of how we should conceive of human value. Um, yeah. It can be its own reward, or it can be an economic reward above and beyond the baseline support that a society should give to every one of its members. But it shouldn't be how we define ourselves or define our value. And this was, you know, this was, uh, we, we've touched on a number of the things which led to me leaving academia in, in various kind of roundabout ways. Yeah. And, and they're all interrelated to this. You know, one, one of them was that increasingly I was dealing with young people in emotional crisis all the time and in my final full year working there i had conversations with six different people about suicide and yeah, that's not your job well i don't mind it being my job i'm glad i had those conversations i'm glad i was able to sit with those people and demonstrate that i cared about them at the same time i'm deeply doubtful of the extent to which i can really mm. help them and I know that I didn't have the ability to refer them to systems that could help them. And that's the part that really hurt. It's that I, I did seek out mental health first aid training because this was becoming a, a bigger and bigger part of my job. Mental health first aid training is about preventing suicide. It's, it's a series of emergency measures for stopping people from killing themselves. Now, even though having six conversations about suicide with six different, bright, interesting, capable young people was tough, that's not actually the toughest thing. The toughest thing was that more than 60% of the students I dealt with were dealing with some sort of stress or depression or anxiety, which impacted upon their ability to function the mm -hmm. way that they should have been able to function. There was nothing there. You know, uh, there, there were options for me to refer them for a bit of counseling. And that bit of counseling was fairly limited in terms of what the university could provide. And the NHS was massively oversubscribed. So you end up in a position as, as the staff member where you either try to provide it, despite your lack of actual training for that, mm. um, because... You know, sometimes people just need a hug. Sometimes people just need to have a conversation and feel listened to. Um, and sometimes it's something much more serious. And honestly, I don't know which is which from, from yeah. day to day. Um, but, you know, you either provide it or you refer them on and know they aren't going to get help. Thinking ahead to that, I didn't want to experience that. I didn't want to continue being part of a system where... I couldn't help people, and I also couldn't refer them to any structure that could help them. Um, and tied to that is a kind of 
increasing skepticism about the utility of the system itself. Because what universities are increasingly becoming is supposedly systems for creating valuable contributing cogs in the economy. And I mean, at one level, I teach media studies, you know, that's never what I was in it for. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in it for creating students who are valuable citizens, but I conceive of their value as being much more than and certainly not primarily economic. Um, and so if if the job is to create people who are going to go out there and get jobs and contribute to the tax base, I'm not that interested in it. I also don't think that aligns very well with what I think the purpose of the job really is, which is to open people's minds and to get them to think deeply and complexly about the world. And if you're just thinking about how you're going to make a living, you don't have time to think complexly about the world. Yeah. With my slightly more conspiracy-minded hat on, I would say that's the point of making mm-hmm. people think about what they're going to do for a living all the time, is to yep. ensure that they don't have the time and the space to think complexly about the world. And they just think, I'm going to get mine, and everybody else can go hang. And, and that's the way you stay trapped in those sorts of endless cycles. You don't need to go to university to think complexly about the world. It really helps. It partially really helps because it's a space where you're exempted from the economy. Like university is a time where someone is giving you money. These days they're loaning you money. You know, someone someone is basically saying, take these four years out and think and come out when you're ready and then wow us. And that is absolutely precious. And, and the more we get away from that version of what a university is and towards a kind of narrow how are you going to use this degree in order to earn a living because nobody hands you anything for free, Sonny Jim, the more we throw away what's actually valuable about a university, the more, honestly, I think you can just sit home and watch the right YouTube videos and you will encounter as much complexity yeah. as, as you would in a, a denuded version of the university experience. Now, all, all of this sounds very down. I loved my time at QMU. I loved the people I met there. I loved the students I worked with. And I still loved it when I left. Mm. Um, but I could see the day when I wouldn't. And I could see the day when the, the battles we were losing day in, day out, would make it not worth fighting anymore. And, and possibly, in a cowardly manner, jumped. <laughs> Rather than keep fighting those. Um, And one of the things that that I've sort of charged myself with is thinking about how in whatever my new life looks like, I can continue trying to contribute to society in non-economic ways. Um, And I know education should be in there somewhere. And maybe mental health should be in there somewhere. um, Because it's not going away as a major pressure on our society. and, and I think that's okay. You know, it's, it's partially a major pressure on our society because people are doing the hard work of thinking complexly about the world. Like, it's pretty easy to not have mental health problems when you just blithely go through life not worrying about things. Um, and some of people's worries come from genuine insecurity, and some of them come from the fact that there's just a lot more stuff to think about. There are fewer things we can take for granted. Uh, and that's uncomfortable. And it should be. That's okay. But giving people the tools to work through that and to get better at navigating it is something that still matters to me. And if I can find a way to do that 
as as a chef as uh, I mean my my only idea at the moment is as a chef actually it would have to be a chef owner thing where you know you bring young people in and, and kind of train them up and mental health chef right you <laughs> cook people's favorite food oh, I don't know <laughs> you have to you have to rebrand every time yeah no I think it would be for me it'd be more about the cooking than the eating it would be more about the the mastery of an area of the world um, and a way of relating to people and giving to people which I think are some of the most exciting things about food um, and that kind of enthusiasm is something I do want to share probably have to get my feet more firmly on the ground uh, before I can uh, can start spreading it around but uh, that's that's sort of the direction I'm thinking Thank you for listening to this episode of A2 Millennials. If you enjoyed, please leave a review or share it with your friends. If you want to be involved or have any questions, email contact at nakamedia.co.uk. Bye for now.